Hello and welcome to Catalyst Infamous, a podcast devoted to personal explorations of the New York Film Festival, hosted by myself, Frank Swen, and welcome to the annual Festival Dispatch for this year's New York Film Festival for the 2023 edition, the 61st. As as with last year, uh, I, I attempted to get together a roundtable, but certain planning difficulties got in the way. Uh, but I am very pleased to still have a wonderful critic on as my far-flung correspondent. Hi, this is Dan Chandel. You might remember me from the 2019 edition roundtable, and I'm very happy to welcome back uh, to be. I'm very happy. Uh, I'm very happy to have been invited back. Thank you, Ryan. Yes, of course. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to have you. What was your general, uh, essentially, the feelings about this New York Film Festival, which should be known as the first one to be uh, uh, to have Denslim as the sole festival director? Um, I really, really liked this year. Um, granted, I'm coming at this from from my perspective. I was not as in tune with many festivals this year. Um, I saw went to TIFF just before this, and then I went to this festival, and I had not been to anything before that. So you know, no with no can or Venice or any of those for this both these festivals together, and there's a lot of overlap in their programming was a big catch up for me. So things that other people, other critics might take for granted because they saw them already, um, like. Uh, May December or close your eyes or anything else to premiere that can like to me were just uh, big revelations and so I I'm also very good at sort of picking out what I think we'll like out of any festival so <laughs> it seemed spectacular to me quality wise um, mm-hmm. I know that just objectively uh, the festival was a very big success uh, basically mm-hmm. everything sold out for them um, they the, what can you say? New York really turned out this year. Um, they demand <laughs> they demand return of cinema. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, uh, and you saw like a, a good amount, uh, mostly in press screenings, right? Yeah, for me, mostly press screenings. Uh, it's tough for me because I do have a day job, and the way that New York sets up their press screenings, it's a kind of a marathon, and so mm-hmm. I was sort of. Sp- fitting them in during the evenings for anything that I hadn't already seen at TIFF, wherever I could make it work. Um, and New York also, I, I don't know how, if you are aware, but New York has a stricter segregation between press and public screenings for accredited press sure. than most other festivals. Um, there are still opportunities, but you have to work a little bit harder and do a lot of like glad handing with press, with press reps in order to get to public uh, access. So it was a pretty even splits, I'd say. And it's, mm-hmm. again, there's a lot of like overlap because I'll, I think actually when I talk about uh, New York f- films this year, most of these I probably actually saw a TIFF, but right. <laughs> because they were, you know, they were separated by like two weeks. They overlap so much my mind. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I figure that's definitely a typical experience. Um, I think we'll we'll talk just about a selection of, uh, of films and I think that the first one is one that you definitely saw at TIFF. Uh, it's one of the ones I'm most excited to see myself. Uh, Eduardo Williams' The Human Surge 3, which was the opening night film uh, for the Currents section. Yeah, um, I remember I saw The Human Surge 1 way back at Locarno in L.A. And mm-hmm. this would have been either 2017 or 18, I think 2017. 2017 um, yeah. And I was, yeah, I was really anticipating this one. Um, I was beguiled and loved a human surge in equal amounts. And I think that anyone who, if you took to that 
for Met Style, then you're going to be absolutely on board with what Williams is doing here. Um, and he's doing it because he's he's not just repeating the same conceit in this one. Um, that if I'm trying to think about this, if the Human Surge is a hyperlink kind of film where you're in this internet dream haze, seamlessly gliding from one milieu to another, Human Surge three evokes this kind of idea of the internet as this unifying, dislocated space where you're everywhere and nowhere at once. So it's rooted in these specific places, but the characters are bleeding in between them, um, at, at like willy-nilly, um, mm. both in terms of audio and visuals. Uh, and of course, a major thing here is that Williams is using this 360-degree camera, which means that mm. there's this constant sense of visual... Um, Di visual, uh, trying to think of a good word, like not visual displacement, but like right. visual uh, disjunction. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the, I think I will say that one thing is a bit disappointing is that sometimes it's, it doesn't feel like it's utilized as much as it could be the three sixty camera, um, and sometimes it honestly looks like it could just be a, a regular widescreen image, just like with this weird uh, sort of interruptions in the frame where you know the uh the edges would meet um but sometimes it's really incredible um i think that the highlight is the last stretch of the movie which takes place with the characters um roving over his hill and the the ultra you know the the widest possible screen is utilized <laughs> to its full effect to show you the big greatest scope of it uh there are you can see in distance people just very casually floating off um, or flying in. And someone mm -hmm. at a post-screening Q&A asked him like about Batty, and he just very simply and casually said, oh, you know, because it's like something out of one of my dreams. Um, <laughs> uh, I was, and after after I walked out of it, um, I was talking with my friend Mark Ash a little bit, and mm -hmm. we both, both agreed that it really feels like a cinematic evocation of the group chat vibe. Um, because right. all these disconnected characters who you could say in this film are kind of brought together by their connection through the internet, um, whether they can be thought of as like literally or allegorically present of each other, it's evoking the fact that the con constant connectedness that we have um, makes us feel like we're not alone even when we are. Um, and it's funny because Another dis another um, yeah. another distinction from the first human surge is that um, whereas that one is a, very much about the internet and often shows people you know at their devices, thinking about it now that happens far less in this oh, one. Um, there's far less of anyone. Uh, I'd be actually be pressed to think of anyone like notably looking at their phone or at a computer in mm -hmm. Human Surge Three, um, and yet it no less feels like a film utterly of its moments mm -hmm. um and in that respect you know the fact that um they skipped human surge 2 uh <laughs> which is another good gag but that thinking about it that way it actually does kind of make sense um mm -hmm. you think of things like how uh we're supposed to be like web 2 or web 3 and i honestly off the top of my head, can't remember if we're supposed to be in Web 3 still or in something yeah. else. <laughs> um, and I think that that title kind of gets at that really well. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point about the um, 
like it, it seems that in some ways the uh from what i've heard about the human search three that it's sort of uh jettisons at least some of the more overt linking elements that that are present in the human search i feel that, like a lot of what was discussed rightly so for for that film was that sort of uh the brevere nature of those transitions and of course that, that's one of the things that jettisoned um, and uh, could you talk about exactly like do you feel that it was like pretty even in the amount of time dedicated in, in terms of jumping between uh, the three countries present uh, in in the film? I would say so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really difficult for me to re- recall many specific incidences in the film. It really <laughs> does, after just one viewing, it really does feel like a dream I'm struggling to remember. I recall image, specific images much better um, than, beca- than any um, sort of plot. For, there's no plot really... Well, no, that's not. That's a, actually that's an anti-intellectual thing to say. Of course, there's a plot. Um, <laughs> the plot is difficult for me to articulate. Um, actually, no, it's the plot is impossible for me personally to articulate after one <laughs> viewing. Um, I would have to see it again, but yeah. I also don't really care, and it's definitely not really about that as much. Um, as the kids say, it's a vibe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I do wonder if that that'll get distribution. Uh, just even the human search they get, just because of the expanded nature of it. I think that I find that paradoxically, the experimental films, like as they get even more elaborate, sometimes can have an even harder time finding distribution. Uh, do Do you know if there's any? Uh, just off the top of your head, if there's any uh, possibility for that, um, I don't. And yeah, I know that I remember Human Surge took a while before it, you know, made it in front of anyone's, uh, in front of any wide audience's eyeballs. Right. Um, but hey, now you can see it on the Roku channel, so hold out hope for believers. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, moving from uh, one film that doesn't have distribution to another, uh, even more surprisingly, uh, in the main slate is. Victor Arithe's Close Your Eyes. Yeah, uh, so I, um, you know, disclosing what a terrible cinephile I am, had not seen (laughs) any of his previous movies, um, which is especially bad when you're going into something that's not just widely heralded as kind of a swan song, but also Mm -hmm. definitely feels in conversation with his earlier work, even though I have not seen it. Um, Mm -hmm. This is like... The latest. This is this style is so fucking late. Um, <laughs> you know, you know what "Close Your Eyes" is about, yes? Well, I actually, I did see it actually. Oh, you saw it? Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, yeah, and I loved it as well. Oh. Yeah. Um, so, question: um, Did you also, when "Close Your Eyes" is in the first, you know, twenty-ish or so minutes, think to yourself, "Wait, I don't remember hearing that this is what this movie is about." Um, because I did, I, I Uh had, I had read what it was about, but then the opening had me second guessing myself before, um, that sequence ends and the Mm -hmm. voiceover contextualizing it happens. Um, I honestly would have been on board for the movie that that was, uh, gearing up to be this, uh, detective story set and set post-war Spain or for a globe trying adventure. But of course Mm -hmm. the movie that actually followed was good Anton way too. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah that was uh like i i heard before i actually did a uh, walk in late because of a uh, of traffic uh but but it was definitely like uh e- even the part the parts i s- saw like i i, I uh, Lawrence garcia i think compared it in some ways to like like a, a late wells film like immortal, immortal story or something like that and I, I definitely like sort of 
even uh, like just from those snippets, I appreciate that sort of uh, like even even that film, even though it's it's shot uh, or supposed to have been shot in 1990, like that film also feels immensely late in a way that e- that the the uh, the modern day or 2012, I guess, set, set footage uh, definitely does as well. It's such a just such a sad, such a melancholy film, mm-hmm. um, very much evoking this feeling of standing where you are in your life and looking around and wondering what the fuck am I doing here? (laughs) Why am I here? Like, um, it just, this point of view character who, whose days as an artist are gone and who is utterly out of joint with like what's around him. Um, his, you know, his friend who's an archivist, who's very matter of fact on how he is, upholding a dead art form um he you know com- communicates by uh singing songs from rio bravo with his friends who <laughs> might not necessarily understand why that would hold any particular significance to him mm-hmm. um although it's beautiful in its own way that it takes on its own significance for them mm-hmm. um and then you think about this guy who uh is sort of stuck looking back and then impossibly discovers that his friend um, is in his own way um, sort of unable to, well, depending on how you look at it, either trapped and unable to um, move on or perfectly mm-hmm. freed from the strict, from yeah. the shackles of his past. Mm-hmm. Um, and. And the second part is particularly interesting, this contrast between someone who can't move on and someone who has more completely than you would even believe moved on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, well, at that juncture, how can you sort of, how can you um, manage, how can you interface memory? And the answer, of course, is with cinema. Um, right because cinema is a memory that's been turned into this tangible form of uh, image and uh, sound. I literally watched uh, Spirit of the Beehive the day, like the morning before I went, I went to the film. So in terms of like having a fuller understanding of like that, of the more autobiographical resonances, uh, I, like I, it's, it's, it's hard for me to have a full handle on that. Yeah, like I, I like the, how, how you des- describe the like particular melancholy of it. Um, and and in this sort of retrospective nature, but also I, I find that like uh, the sort of uh, like one one of the things I loved most about the film was the the sort of feeling of the settings of the particular places that each like and, and especially how they sort of characterize this series of encounters, uh, at least the encounters that go on before uh, before they reach the the nursing home, like the attention to each of the spaces, the attention to the disparate histories I, I felt that it was for for whatever reason it was like one of the one of the more uh moving and more considered aspects of this film that's already immensely uh immensely attuned to those details it's a film that i think is almost entirely set in these sort of these outset places this very sterile office building back rooms like the storage spaces for the films um, where uh, Miguel lives, which is this like um, on the beach with these other people in this little neighborhood and very ramshackle, but very actually very lived in um, 
you know, lived in homes sort of scrapped mm-hmm. together with his dog. Uh, <laughs> yeah, f- you know, flea markets and hotel rooms and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, like, it's, sort of, it's, it's a weird film in, in that I, I feel that, like, it's both... Like the the trajectory, in in some ways you could categorize it as a spoiler to you know like to say where it ultimately goes like uh, in terms of like having him actually finding that his friend is still alive, but also like in in a way like it sort of seems to scarcely matter just because of the of how sort of relaxed. Of course, this is a, a long, a near, approaching three hours film. Like the the relaxed pacing, the the emphasis more on these uh, conversations and about this reckoning with uh, personal cinematic pass uh than than anything else yeah like it's it's a film i very much hope it gets distribution and and i think it's certainly among the strongest uh films this year uh moving to another film in the main slate bertrand bonello's the beast a very a very different film (laughs) love this one i absolutely love this one there's plenty of others have already compared it to lynch especially particularly Mm -hmm. return um which I cannot uh, dispute. Yeah, I meant to read the um, the short story this is based on, but of course I didn't. Uh, but I did note a very interesting overlap uh, for anyone who likes taking note of such things, which is that um, the Beast in the Jungle, the, the Beast in the Jungle, the Henry James short story, uh, apparently was a great. Uh, it haunted J. Robert Oppenheimer from his youth and then took on an interesting tenor once, of course, he fell from grace after the war amidst the Red Scare. Um, so there's a, there, there for You is another film about um, the horrible weight of potential future cataclysm bearing down the psyche of the present, um, which makes for a good point of comparison for this, um, which is a tremendous evocation of, uh, you know, all caps, the way we live now mm-hmm. and this pervading sense of dread that many people have um, that's connecting it through past um, catastrophe and then linking that to contemporary, just digitally suffused and mediated um, psychosis and paranoia. Mm-hmm. And then projecting forward this nightmare vision of a future even more mediated to the point of emotional censorship and um, tailor-made sort of bespoke bespoke mental surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I love the way that it treats these three overlapping timelines and the way that it's a movie with these three very different um, plots that feel completely of a piece and very different performances um, by Lea Seydoux, who's great in this, um, Mm -hmm. and also feel unified. Um, One interesting comparison for me is like Cloud Atlas of this idea of reincarnation, Uh, but I think it actually does that much, much better. (laughs) <laughs> um, it also does it without any problematic um, sure. use of makeup. <laughs> Have you been a fan of Bonello's in the past? I know that even for some people who haven't uh, haven't loved him, they've they've uh, been uh, been enamored of this one. Um, 
I'm mostly familiar with him for his output from the 2010s onward, sure. not so much his early, earlier stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But I actually do think that his more recent films that put him on a really interesting kick, he's probably one of the few older directors who actually in some way can kind of speak to how the youths are. I'm thinking <laughs> about like Zombie Child, Mincoma, which I loved. Yeah. Um, and both of those actually also presage this in different ways. Uh, Zombie Child with this idea of um, sort of dread uh, of the just dread around um, this psych the this sort of psychic ambiance of the world around you and the things that you don't understand closing in and then coma with its themes around this ultra mediated digital reality and how surreal it is and to the point of almost um inculcating a foreign mindset and uh way of interacting with the world in the people who have grown up with it if coma is this evocation of what it's like to live now uh or well maybe not now and anymore it actually you could even think of it as like already this sort of time capsule it's past because it's mostly this look at pandemic life um Mm -hmm. but if you look at it as this capsule of present day digital alienation then the beast it follows strumbat with this by uh postulating then what could be considered the next logical step Mm -hmm. and then also sort of projecting that backwards and thinking of it as a way of how we um, then, uh, how the, in that case, how does the past then inform our present? Um, and then of course, confusing the idea of like what the present or the future even is. Is The Beast a movie about fin de siècle uh, Parisians having this premonition of the future, whether that's um, in their interactions or if, as their dying dreams and this absurd, almost incomprehensible manner in which they die amid mm-hmm. this, you know, uh, this almost fairy tale setting of a citywide flood, which then mm-hmm. by contravance uh, kills him in concert with this fire and electricity in a horrifying factory full of dolls. Mm-hmm. Is it this mixture bet- of the... Um, is a mixture of this of this woman in contemporary Los Angeles uh, imagining slash dreaming of the, this weird past while imagining a different future while she's stalked by an the utterly um, ultra contemporary figure of this um, incel uh, of this incel psycho this incel like anticipated mass shooter. Um, or is it from the future point of view, looking back on the 20th and 21st century, some of far remove um, and viewing different catastrophes as of a kind? Mm-hmm. Yeah, It can be, you can think of it as any one of those, or maybe it's all three at once. Yeah, yeah definitely. It's sort of like, it, it's even though Penelope's tackled so many different eras, so many different time periods and mindsets in his films, it's sort of, strange to think of like the, him like tackling just all of this at once just like this enormous blast of so many different and they're intercut right oh yes um mm-hmm. there's definitely a shift um you, you know during the film's first hour or so it's mostly focused on um the section in paris in the early mm-hmm. 1900s and then in the middle hour it's concentrated more on the present day sets uh sections in los angeles um mm-hmm. and then in the last 
25 minutes or so of the future section takes precedence. Um, you could you could almost see it as a diptych with the future sections as this framing device because there is less of that compared to right. um, the the first two sections, the, pa- the past and present, if you can call it, or, you know, the 20th century and the 21st century segments. Right, definitely. Yeah, I had heard for uh, you know, for numerous reasons, I had heard the most about the LA sections, but like sort of, especially um, because of how central House of Tolerance is to his, uh, uh, to like, you know, his sort of uh, breakthrough. Like it's, it in a weird way, it's quite nice to hear that he has a lot of the, of the Paris set, um, Parasite material uh, in there in that first hour. Well, it's uh, that event, the Paris Flood, is just inherently this really terrific um, set a setting to use for anything. I actually mm-hmm. kind of can't believe that more people haven't gone to that well. It's the <laughs> image of the streets flooded and all these crisscrossing planks help letting people navigate it. Uh, it's really striking, um, and it is a perfect um, emblem for the whole idea of life somehow absurdly continuing to function in the face of what might at first seem like a uh, crippling um, devastation. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy that it did finally get picked up by, I think it's Saicho and Janice. Moving back to the current section, uh, I, another sort of tripartite sort of construction uh, is the program very, titled very simply Jean-Luc Godard plus Wang Bing plus Pedro Costa uh, with a uh, trailer of a film that will never exist, Phony Wars by Godard, Man in Black by Wang Bing and uh, The Daughters of Fire by Pedro Costa. Yeah. Um, so start with actually with the last film in that sure. program, which is Daughters of Fire. I'm a huge fan of Pedro Costa. Um, mm-hmm. He said, despite having not seen that many of his works altogether, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> but it's kind of this. It's interesting that um, the Godard is presented is titled like trailer for a film that will never exist, whereas Daughters of Fire actually also sort of feels like a trailer. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. Um, is, you know, this preamble to a feature-length film that he is planning to make. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could think of it as a kind of proof of concept. Um, right. But that, you know, that, I don't mean it to, I don't say this to mean it, but that could be taken as kind of minimizing it uh, or mm-hmm. or putting it, like, as a kind of uh, anyone who, like, is, you know, making a film school short to essentially pitch for a feature. But I don't, mm-hmm. that's not really what he's doing here. Um, it could definitely be used as like an installation piece very, pretty seamlessly. Right. Um, and it's very vivid, uh, this, you know, it's this triptych image, um, three different women in different settings um, that are all unified, this sort of a sense of, uh, Desolation, you know, Dodgers of Fire post uh, this volcanic eruption, um, singing and um, singing together, and it's it intri- it intrigues me. Um, mm-hmm. In the moments, it's this really beautiful vision of these three three different people who um, together are very are communing across distance with their shared idea of. Uh, survival and worries about the future. Mm-hmm. So I really, I, I really was really taken with it. Um, and you know, I 
this goes without saying a pasta, but I'm really looking forward to see what he does uh, next with that. Whether <laughs> I, I don't know if like this is uh, telling us that the actual feature will in any way be like this. I mean, that's difficult mm-hmm. to imagine like an entire movie in like uh, three free panel um, imagery, but mm-hmm. whatever, however, whatever form it takes, um, very. Right. Very intrigued with that. Mm-hmm. And of course, on the other side, you have Phony Wars, which, as the title says, um, we don't get to see like where exactly Godar would go with this because this is just what we have. This is what's left over. This is, uh, it very much feels like, you know, not even the not even something that was started and then abruptly halted it's mm-hmm. just it is mostly still images of different materials that you had um it's funny he already had a movie called the image book but this could even more literally yeah. be taken as that uh because it is filled mainly with image book material materials mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and i'm not as not the most godard literate um sure critic unfortunately but this does very much feel appropriate for him actually that this is how this is what this is his parting shot to us Mm -hmm. as a filmmaker um it reinforces the idea that you know of him as an artist who was just constantly looking for a next thing and then when you like that you know the odds that you will go out when you've already finished saying something are very very low so it actually Mm -hmm. feels perfect that he sort of artistically dies Mm, mm mid-sentence um and i think that the fact that they put this together in this way um does feel very fitting um man black is the first uh of wong's films i've seen Mm -hmm. uh that are on the more um on the shorter for one thing but also Uh, not in the documentary mode that I'm used to from him. Uh, I've seen uh, several of his works, and all of them are his more observational films, things like Mm -hmm. Ta'ang and Mrs. Fong, or what was also at this festival this year, Antif, which was Youth, uh, parenthesis Spring. Mm -hmm. So this was, um, this is, of course, very different. It is also documentary, and it is very heavily, um, it is also documentary, but, Unlike what I've seen from him, uh, it's more testimonial. And I know that's not um, out of character from him. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just more present in films that I haven't seen from him. Um, sure. But it, so it has this uh, composer, Wang Jilin, who, who spends the first, I guess, half or, two, uh, or so of the film in, going through this sort of ritualistic... Um, dance rove you could call it where he's striding through this uh, abandoned theater um he's you know f- literally stripped nude and he's also figuratively bearing all for us um his his his, mo- his movements don't make sense like at first but then once he's talking it uh that's sort of then once he starts talking that fills it in because these gestures he makes are very often like very like cowering um he their modes poses a supplication he's on his knees he's bowing his head he's raising his arm hands and then he starts to talk and he contextualizes that because he's talking about all of the many difficulties they faced during his career when he was living in china um from the 40s uh through different eras of political repression on artists <clears throat> and mm-hmm. different um 
various imprisonments. Um, he was also institutionalized um, and uh, you know, subject to physical abuse during the Cultural Revolution. Um, and so it's this in really interesting sort of mode of um, documentary interview as testimony, which, again, I, I, I know is not unfamiliar to, to Wong. Um, and I think that the interplay between the dance and the testimony is really affecting. Um, it's also very interesting because uh, for Wang Jilin, but he, you know, he's a he's a composer, uh, but he and he does perform some music on the piano in the theater. But much more of uh, him in this in his performance are, is you know very physical as mm -hmm. opposed to musical. Um, now music of course is playing on the um film soundtrack as well uh but i think that's very interesting how it lets his extant music sort of um which is already a statement that he's made stand and then he's almost adding to it through both his performance with it and with his testimony mm -hmm, definitely yeah like all, all three have been uh like do, do you feel that the the three worked together as a as a um, as a single program hmm. i think that phony wars and daughters of fire definitely feel of a piece together they bookmark mm -hmm. man in black in the program as they laid it out first was trailer which makes sense you know it's you know yeah. you put the trailer first yeah, yeah. Uh, this is actually a pretty good joke uh, uh -huh. and then man in black is the main feature and daughters of fire arrives as a sort of coda right. um and it's actually kind of interesting that if you go through them, it's sort, there's sort of a reverse order to it, where mm -hmm. um, Phony Wars is this cutoff, final statements. Right. Man in Black is this statement of a man who's still alive looking back on his life. And then mm -hmm. Dars of Fire is a very forward-looking movie about right. characters who have experienced um, this common disaster who are now looking to the future. Yeah. Um, so you can look at it as this movement cinematically from death to life. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, it's, it's been fascinating to see the various permutations that it's been packaged or and, uh, any or all of these films have been packaged like at TIFF in Wavelengths it played uh, Daughters and Trailer played alongside I think like a compilation of early, a very early Chantal Ackerman uh, like uh, directorial work. And then like here at, at, in uh at AFI Fest, uh, which just concluded, um, Daughters played alongside Angela Shanalek's music. Uh, so it's been interesting to, just to see those different permutations. And of course, at Ken, I think that Daughters and Man in Black did play alongside each other. But certainly in terms of that uh, progression, like it's, it's, did it almost feel like a, like a, the, the, did the Costa especially feel like almost like a release or something like that? I would say so, yeah. Hmm. Um, and but I'm sorry, I'm stuck on actually what you said about um, Dodgers of Fire playing with music. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly why, especially because like music is, you know, it's like, you know, it closer to th closer to two hours. Like, it, whereas like um, the way that Cinema Guild is releasing it uh, alongside Hunks in Water, like it, it like that that seems just because that film's shorter and there's that sort of fun elemental comparison that like a, it, it almost seems like a more fitting thing to fire and water like double feature yes absolutely uh and also playing here in acropolis uh in a fire plus water plus power in Godard's the power of speech uh from from his, his short from i think 85 or something like that so another fun uh another fun 
permutation and hopefully a long line of different of different experiments with the, these these films. Uh, moving to the spotlight section uh, is another extremely late work. Uh, it seems to be a theme throughout uh, throughout this uh, throughout this episode. Miyazaki Hayao's uh, How Do You Live, also known in the U.S. distribution as The Boy and the Heron. Uh, I, re- I refuse to acknowledge the fake uh, English name. It's How Do You Live. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so there's a clickhole article whose title is Blood into Water, colon, these people enjoying a very casual conversation about Hayao Miyazaki have no idea if there's an absolute Miyazaki freak lying in wait among them. And this describes <laughs> me. So I could, I could fill up this entire podcast just talking about how do you live, but I will sure. try not to. Um, it is indeed, you described it as a very late work, and it is mm-hmm. very much feels like a final film. Um, but funnily enough, you can say that, but something mm-hmm. that I wrote in my review of this film for Hyperallergic, but ultimately was right. cut for time, is that each of Miyazaki's alleged final films, of which he has now had like four, um, yeah. also feel very much like they would work as his final film. Like his first quote-unquote last film was Princess Mononoke, right. um, which very much feels like this epic culmination of his uh, concern of how civil society kind of works and how in man's relationship to a natural world. Mm-hmm. Then Spirited Away, which is another supposed to be final film. Um, I, oh, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. I knew about Mononoke, but I didn't know about uh, about spirit away as a potential I mean, final film i'm i'm pretty sure it was it was another one intended to be i might be wrong sure. it's difficult mm-hmm. to keep in track because again he's yeah. friends to retire so many different times um <laughs> but spirited away would also be very appropriate as a final film because yeah. of its look at um childhood and mm-hmm. relationship between uh sort of both um the look at both um youth versus uh experience more broadly and also very specifically um japan's past versus its present Mm -hmm. and future Mm -hmm. um the wind rises of course which was much more solid as his his attempt at retirement because there was a much longer gap between that and this return um that felt like a perfect final film it's this very you know as a very sobering statement on the hazards of creativity Mm -hmm. and on the historical memory that Japan had around the war. Um, Mm -hmm. And then looking at how do you live, it feels in many ways, uh, it feels similarly appropriate as a, it feels similarly appropriate as a final film in ways to combine all of those because, Mm -hmm. and that's because another way that feels like a final film is that it is a marathon of, basically everything that Miyazaki fixates on in his work. Um, you have a fantastical alternate world of a World War II setting with a uh, with the father who builds airplanes. You have the airplane fascination. There's little guys. We love our little guys. They've, they <laughs> float up to the sky. They're going to become babies, apparently. There's crones. There's, so, there's a whole coterie of delightful old crones. Mm-hmm. Um uh, there's a brassy lesbian. He loves his brassy lesbians. Um, <laughs> and there's time travel shenanigans. There's baffling metaphysics that do make sense if you think about it. Um, mm-hmm. There's incredible, overwhelming me- melancholy. And of course, at its core is this ambivalence around the future that's mm-hmm. caught somewhere between this despairing idea of like 
how badly that adults have fucked up the world and then mm -hmm. this cautious optimism about what children could possibly do to make things better right. um mm -hmm. and more than anything else it's just a fucking gorgeous movie mm -hmm. um it it took um even longer to make because you know he's old but he's still a perfectionist so he just right. wants to keep being able to give feedback on everything but just takes him longer to do it um but especially now in its era where animation is more outsourced and and automated than ever and which where that looks like it could get even worse because of ai tools um the amount of care that goes into his animation is so striking. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a single moment in this movie where any action does not look completely and comprehensively drawn out. Every single gesture is fully illustrated. And the amount of detail that goes into it, like the sound design in this movie is amazing. Everything has so <laughs> much weight to it. And mm -hmm. there's so much momentum. Like as a filmmaker, uh, as a director of animation, one of his greatest strengths is momentum that these characters have. They run and they keep going for a little while. They have this weight and they step onto a rickshaw and it shudders beneath them. You see like everything bounce precisely as it should and creak with every single little detail. Um, he loves flight and the way that he renders flight is always so fascinating. Um, the, they're, it's cartoonish, but it's obeying this, these, these physics. And so you see the heron, the titular heron, um, yeah struggling to take off at times he beats his wings uh as a preamble before he can actually take flight he lands and he's stumbling on his you know his long bandy legs as he gets down because he has to arrest his momentum mm -hmm. um and then he like become it turns out the heron is like this freaky little guy like inside of a heron <laughs> suit of sorts um because he's like you know less a heron and like this kind of heron yokai which is is a heron but also isn't and is kind of wearing his own his own skin as a um disguise and uh he f literally reveals this inner um ugliness as uh he becomes an untrustworthy figure mm -hmm. um yeah it just uh i really it's not i don't think it's his best film but it is a it is the most miyazaki film <laughs> and i think it would be a perfect final film but of course he didn't even take a few years this time to unretire <laughs> yeah. um did you know that uh, going in that he had already uh, officially unretired? I, I had not. I mean, and it wasn't official because mm -hmm. the first inkling was um, from like that night of the t premiere at TIFF where the producer, you know, very casually revealed on the red carpet that, oh, yeah, no, he's already hard. At, he's already like thinking about his next one. Um, <laughs> but my attitude is that um, Miyazaki is, is not retired until proven dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I will never believe that he has retired. The only way that his retirement will stick is if he happens to die like during a brief retirement before he officially announces that he uh, is working on something else. Um, mm -hmm. I just know now that he's working on his next one, I'm just I wish him all the best. I bet I will love it. Uh, I just hope that I mean, I mean, it wouldn't be a Satoshi Kon situation if he died because Ghibli has a lot more sway um, production-wise, but yeah. it would be a real shame to like see his work have to be finished by someone else. So just like uh, hang right. in there, please. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Like it's sort of it's it's always uh, like just seeing reviews and things like that that have been written about the film already. Like it's sort of 
I, I think the thing that I kind of marvel at, uh, and this is not to say that doesn't describe uh, some of his other films, but just like how people have been sort of almost at a loss to uh, summarize it, uh, just just because of like the the amount of stuff or the amount of uh, of things and incidents and uh, and characters that are in it. There's so much. It is very much him on his Little Prince, uh, Alice in Wonderland shit. Uh. Um, <laughs> and there's also you know people are can be tentative about describing anything in depth because there's a lot of sensitivity around spoilers of this one, which Mm -hmm. is, is an interesting, I think unintended side effect of the fact that, you know, they didn't promote it at all in originally in Japan. Um, but I mean, I've never cared about spoilers. I do try to respect other people's desire not be spoiled. Mm -hmm. I, and I do, I don't know. I go back and forth on like how much knowing anything, would have affected my viewing of it um because i you know i had only seen the poster i had seen a few of the press images but otherwise i went and i did go in completely blind um and there is definitely something to be said about uh not knowing what is going what is going on at first and the film revealing itself to you as you go along but i think it is safe to say like yeah a lot a lot happens there's uh there's (laughs) There is, I actually, yeah, I actually would say that like, if you were to, in a kind of boring way for a college class, sort of plot out the actual beats of the story, this is probably the most incident laden of his films, um, even mm-hmm. more so than something like Princess Mononoke, which has a very large cast and a lot of twists and turns in it. Right. Um, and there's just so much, yeah, no, like you said, there's so much stuff going on here. Um, <laughs> but I think, no, and I think that, but again, I think that that is very much in line with his influences, um, which are very apparent here, and what he's trying to do, which is this very sprawling um, <clears throat> look at different permutations of creativity and the possibilities and pitfalls of creation, um, both in the real world, both first grounding in the real world and then putting it into his fantasy realm. There's something of all of his movies in this, but if you were to boil it down, it does really feel mainly like um, a combination of Wind Rises and Spirited Away, specifically Uh, hmm. if you took characters from Wind Rises and then put them in a Spirited Away. (laughs) I kind of want to see that that kind of super cut. Mm. (laughs) Especially imagining Anno's voice. (laughs) <laughs> or, 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 or his character just just trying to navigate that that labyrinth uh moving on uh moving back to the currents uh section and this i know this is actually a lot of this is just uh going over things that you've already written about especially with the, with these currents uh current shorts but i was curious um for the current shorts did you watch them all uh like the five that you wrote about um for hyperlogic aside from the uh Godar wong costa uh program did you watch those all at a press screening no um those i for the shorts i went through what they made available as screeners which was a pretty good amount of them i'd say at least half of their current shorts they were we were able to watch um and it was a combination of picking from filmmakers who i knew were reliable and also the you know tried and true festival narrative of like hey this sounds interesting and just (laughs) just uh, rolling the dice by clicking play on it um and yeah, it was an interesting, and I was pleasantly surprised by the commonalities that I saw between what I did pick, and I mm-hmm. uh, liked all of them to one some to some extent. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them I really loved, and 
Uh, yeah, that made that made for fun viewing for, uh, and then it was fun to write about them for uh, that roundup. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think maybe we'll just like talk just briefly about a few. I was uh, especially curious. Uh, these are like uh, filmmakers I know better for one reason or another. But uh, uh, with Kevin Jerome Emerson's "If You Don't Watch the Way You Move" uh, and Adam Pyron's uh, "Dao Uncut," uh, moving along image. Yeah, um, I make it a priority to try to see every new Kevin Jerome Emerson film. I think he's a yeah. genius. Mm-hmm. Um, every each one is this very vivid. If you look at his filmography in a whole, it, as a whole, um, it's v- composed of this giant uh, montage of different vignettes. Um, mm-hmm. Each one really striking in its own way. Um, he kind he finds on this macro, micro level just like very little milieus and just looks at them for this brief time and gives you this really interesting snapshot of it. Um, often making this very powerful statements, um, usually about Black life in America, and. This one, uh, just in its look at the kind of mundane aspects of, um, you know, art of uh, artistic creation and collaboration, um, which has these musicians recording uh, for the song that they're working on, and then this very interesting interjection of, as the film is described, like uh, just a, a variation on um, John Cage's. Uh, Four minutes, forty-three seconds, where it was just like this stretch of silence, and the silence is what's filling, you know, filling up the soundscape while they're just listening to what they've recorded. They're listening. We're not privy to it. We know, you know, we've already heard them rehearsing and recording some of it, so we know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're just left with them instead, and so the focus shifts to them in the act of contemplation and. Um, mulling over what they've made and considering it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just, no, it's just really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then moving along image, uh, I mean, disclaimer, Adam's a friend of mine. Um, and mine as well. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yeah, but without out of the way, I, I, I promise that even if he wasn't a friend, I would be shouting this out <laughs> because I think it's incredible. It's absolutely great. Um, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for any movie that can experiments with aspect ratio and mm. especially in a way to convey a different medium and then yeah. makes it work so this is a smart this is a smart film this is a smartphone film um mm. if you could uh play it on a smartphone and it would be like the film is taking over your phone because it would look like your phone was acting of its own accord and cycling through different apps right. um, or, or through different social media feeds, mm-hmm. uh, which is really, which is neat. Um, and I would like to see, but you know, also yeah. on a cinema screen, it works just as well. And I think that it, it is, it is in this way um, a continuation of the kind of screen life filmmaking, you know, um, just, mm-hmm. I think, I guess screen, screen life, I guess screen life filmmaking is a different way to describe that now because it used to be desktop filmmaking, but now we have to consider like the different screens we have. Um, mm-hmm. I say this don't I don't know if like screen life was actually involved and in, used in the creation of this, um, mm-hmm. but you know that overall aesthetic of found footage or found screen filmmaking, and I think that the way that this moves between the different feeds is a really great evocation of what it is like to scroll. Mm-hmm. Um, but the eye is very disciplined, and so you can see the way that um, 
they are brought together. The even though the uh, transitions seem seamless, like the editing is really precise here. The, the investigation that it does here in these different intersections of ideas of resistance and how those translate differently across different cultures, this ambivalence around the idea of the iconography of the quote-unquote native warrior, which is this non-specific kind of um, icon, which flattens you know different native identities and different contexts of war and, and fighting, um, because of the, in the same way that all symbols like flatten complex ideas. And so the way that he investigates the surprising appearance of such an icon and it bring, the way it brings together all these different things about um, the military, like the fact that, you know, every every U.S. helicopter is named after a different tribe, which when you get <laughs> yeah. into the history there between the U.S. military and the native peoples of the of uh, the continent is very thorny. Yeah. Um, there's, it's there, it's 15 minutes and there are many, many more ideas crammed into it. Mm-hmm. And that's always really impressive to me. Um that's that's one of the great potentials of sort of screen life filmmaking is that because of the way that the co- contemporary information um, flows and the way that contemporary media is structured, um, different ideas can be layered together very easily, uh, which is, of course, one reason that it can be incredibly exhausting to be online. But <laughs> the potential for artists is really we're still navigating how to tap that because there's so much potential for um, packing together a lot of information at once. And I think that Adam does it really well here. Mm-hmm. Excited to see both of those uh, and many of the others in the current section. That was uh, interesting. I, I didn't realize that they were, uh, that the current shorts in general were provided as, as screeners. Uh, Some of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, interesting. Uh, as, as someone who's never officially covered the festival even though i even though i do these every year i've actually never officially covered it so it's always uh nice to nice to hear about the the process of that come uh, come, come next year you can crash my couch oh, i'd love to thank you uh, uh i think that we'll discuss one final film uh moving back to the main slate uh a very welcome surprise is hamukuchi ryusuke's evil does not exist yeah um this movie is I've thought about this one a lot, mostly because of its ending, which is yeah. one of the most jarring, uh, genuinely jarring experiences I've had in a movie theater lately. Um, you know, there, there's too much. There's too much premium. There's too much of a premium paid. Sometimes there's too much of a premium placed on like the idea of like, oh, I saw that coming. Um, yeah. But that being said, uh, I would not have in a million years have seen this ending coming, uh, <laughs> and it really throws a lot of what happens earlier in the film into a different context. It makes you rethink like what you've seen, makes you mm-hmm. question like what it's doing the entire time and what it's actually saying about uh, what it's looking at. Um, mm-hmm. And then of course, as you think about it, you also, the things that are actually pointing toward it um, become more apparent. And that's, no, it's really, you also think of the title and how it interacts with that. And um, the pointed knot, which could might as well be in a parentheses, like the Evangelion titles for the Rebuild <laughs> series, like uh, Evangelion 5.55, evil does, parentheses now exist. Um, yeah, it's because um, 
It's interesting because, you know, uh, I've, I'm not, this is not original thought by me. Um, the brilliant Adam Naiman already talked about it, but mm -hmm. Hamaguchi is a contemporary and friend of Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Yeah. And this very much feels like him more on, in a Kurosawa mode, uh, just with this simmering ambience unease uh, that runs through it. And of course, you could mistake that for this ge just general. Um, you can mistake this for a natural consequence of the premise, which brings together the city folk and the country mice, right? Yeah. Um, and that Hamaguchi, in his very naturalistic mode of observing them, you know, interacting and looking with a sympathetic eye to everyone, uh, you would think that that's just a natural outgrowth of the tension that's fair. But it, mm -hmm. uh, over time, and particularly with the ending, you realize that the tension is actually much more, I don't want to say primal, but it could be thought of as primal. I'll certainly say at least this elemental tension. The movie is full of these reminders, both gentle and forceful, that it is it takes practice and experience to be able to live outside of the all of the comforts of a hyper-technologized, hyper-industrialized society, um, which is always not as far away as we think. Um, you know, they, they reinforce that this town is only a few hours away from Tokyo. Um, I was actually just, my girlfriend and I were upstate this weekend, and it, you don't get far, too far away from New York City before suddenly it's, uh, this, suddenly it's like, you know, suburban sprawl, which gives way to just the woods. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, observing these people who uh, have to, who, who are collecting their own water and have built this um, sort of ad hoc system of favors in order to keep things running smoothly um, and who sometimes demonstrate very impressive solidarity with each other, throwing that into relief with people coming in from Tokyo who don't you know condescend to them at first and then later are opening are approaching with open minds but then there's there's the way you think that's going to go and the way that it looks like it's going for most of the movie and then it sort of snaps back with this very forceful reminder of like no nature is dangerous <laughs> and of course man is a part of nature by extension yeah definitely yeah like that's uh it's always been uh, like I, I think that um, obviously I've heard I still thankfully do not know the, the exact uh, the exact nature of the ending. Uh, the, the, of course, that's been like the really the dominant thing in a lot of uh, conversations about the film, and it sort of reminds me of like how uh, when he was talking about the ending of Drive My Car and the sort of or the like specifically that coda like where it's um, where it's uh, just about Miro Toko's character and like and she has the car but in a completely different setting like where he described him like instead of ending on the final performance of the play uh that like it it, it like he, he sort of wanted to shy away from necessarily per, like a perfect ending or like an ending that would have seemed like too much of like a uh uh like a concrete culmination that sort of thing and like and i certainly i, I th i've thought about that a lot even just in terms of people have talking about this ending in terms of this sort of left field turn that it takes. Yeah, it's it's definitely one that I missed it twice at AFI Fest because of, of other obligations. Um, but I, I certainly can't wait uh, can't wait to see it. Uh, 
yeah, I think that should probably do it for our uh, for this uh, edition of the of the dispatch. Uh, thank you so much, Dan, as always, uh, uh, for for agreeing to guest on it. Yeah, of course. Thank you for bringing me on. Yeah, absolutely, and thank you uh, very much to the listener for uh, for always bearing these year long uh, year long absences, year long breaks uh, from the podcast. Uh, with law school hopefully wrapping up uh, in, within the next year, I uh, I hope to be able to resume once again the, the regular uh, run of the of the episode, and maybe even to uh, to actually be in New York to report more and report more regularly on uh, on site at uh, at the festival. Uh, but uh, I I'm very very confident that at least these uh, these yearly episodes are uh, are enough to tide you over. Uh, and so thank you very much. So